You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Broken records, the albums you wouldn't shut up about. Broken records, the music our guests can't live without. Like Judy, Barbara, Liza, Bet, Betty, Audra, Bernadette. We broadcast this podcast with hopes that someday we might get Patty Welcome to Tuesday. Just kidding. Welcome to <laughs> Ben Rimmelauer's Broken Records on Broadway. I said Broken Records. Broken Records on the Broadway World and the Broadway Podcast Network. I'm literally doing Coscola. And Broadway On Demand. I'm your host, Bernadette Peters, and I'm here with my lovely co-host, Lorna Luft. <laughs> Crack that shit. Uh, I, I was going to try to do a Lorna, but I shan't, but I will say I, I, um, every night this week I've been watching a different episode of Murder, She Wrote. I've realized I only, I only like the episodes really that are set in Cabot Cove. Um, um and so anyway, I was watching one of those and guess who showed up as the killer in one of the episodes working in a shoe factory. George Hearn. Oh, sorry. No, but George Hearn, I'm sure he's in plenty. Um, although uh, another one I watched, uh, Lynn Carew was the killer, I believe. You, you got to butter both sides of that bread. Right. So anyway, but Lorna was the killer. I could not have been happier. Um, so anyway, with that said, hey, y'all. Today, <laughs> well, today is a very special episode because I really feel... It brings so many elements, things that we've been talking about, stars we've been discussing throughout the you know history of our pod. Canonically, they're our favorite stars. It all comes full circle today with the discussion of the greatest film of all time, The First Wives Club. I have to say that I had to be dragged somewhat yes, kickingly and screamingly um, I really had to convince you on this one. Like Daniel and I basically had to go to like friendship counseling to like get over like the drama of like me like not wanting to do this episode. And right, right. I have to stand here with my hat in my hand because <laughs> with your tail between your legs, my tail between my legs. I am so happy. Like I. Wait, have we said the title? Yeah, you did say the title. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Miller, Diva Las Vegas, right? <laughs> Can you imagine if we did like an hour-long episode where we never said ah, different things? Yeah. <laughs> and no one ever realizes it. Um, the thing is, like, okay, don't get me wrong, anyone out there clutching their pearls. I love and clutching I have all, Cynthia Pearl. Yes, there it is. Always, always have loved First Wives Club. Mm-hmm. First Wives Club, like, I saw it in the theater, and in 1996, I was a junior in college, mm. and I was immediately... Okay, just to set up my life a little bit, junior year, um, I was directing the musical Ruthless for my college theater company, Bear Stage. And it's just so, like, you, like, Annie narrating the movie at the beginning of the movie, by the way, when she's like, the year of walking on the moon, yellow submarine... <laughs> <laughs> me and my three best friends at college. Well, totally, on. because the thing is, like, 
So I was directing Ruthless, and Ruthless is an all-female cast, um, uh, except for a man that plays uh, Sylvia St. Croix. Um, but, uh, but that's a female character. But I, but I also added a female chorus to have, because I had so many brilliant women who auditioned that I wanted to use mm, them all. I love a chorus added on. And I was like a monster. You would have fucking hated me so much, Daniel, because like I had like... I had been like the like black sheep, like ugly redheaded stepchild of the Berkeley drama department, my freshman and sophomore years. But second semester, sophomore year, I started the student theater company and I directed falsettos and people freaked out over how great falsettos was, even though I had no resources and no support. And then I thought I was like, finally, (laughs) like I was like the diva king that I had like always dreamed I would be. I I remember reading an interview with George C. Wolfe where he said that his college years were his Ava Peron period. And that is very much where I was coming from. And so directing Ruthless with this cast of women, I I acted like an Arthur Lawrence or Jerome Robbins kind of tyrant. Oh, God. And I... the. The thing that I espoused with them all was this idea of the diva, that I put them through, like, diva training because it was all about, like, them being divas, you know? And um, <laughs> This is so, like, Jack McFarlane, the McFarlane method. It, this it, was, like, the really was. method. Oh, no, it gets worse. Do you know what one of my philosophies was that I espoused? I sh- shudder to ask what. Volume over pitch. <laughs> that scans 100%. So... <laughs> Anyway, and uh, so first Wise Club, and this was a moment in my life where I had completely just like had no more interest in the hundreds and hundreds of Broadway cast recordings I had been uh, meticulously collecting for at that point like 10 years. All mm-hmm. I cared about was diva solo albums. And mm-hmm. the number one that I was most obsessed with at the time was Bette Midler. You know, mm-hmm. uh, literally the number one album that I was most obsessed with at the time was Bette Midler's album, Bette Midler. And that's yeah, her second album, album, right? Where she sings Skylark and I Shall Be Released mm-hmm. and all these great tracks. But anyway, so I was, and I had just been really obsessed with the speaking of Bette Midler Diva Las Vegas concert. Oh, no, no, no that was later in the year. But I was, Dude, anyway, yeah, I, was right deep, I was deep into Bette. And, um, uh, so I went to see this movie and I was, oh, and also Ruthless, I was really pr- excited about the title song in Ruthless that's sung by the three uh, lead female characters at the end. And so I saw First Wives Club about these three women, including Bette Midler, and it just like hit me where I lived. And I was obsessed with it and I based my staging of the title song in Ruthless on the um, you don't uh, you don't own me that they do at the end of First Wives Club, yes. and I loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it, and I saw it I think a couple more times in the theater, and I bought the VHS tape and wore yes. it, wore it down, knew every word by heart, and the thing is just that that movie was so uh, important to me in that moment in time, and then was so seminal for me. I, it was such a part of who I am that it was never far from my heart. Yes. And so in a way I've kind of taken it for granted and um and we I happened to have watched it Daniel and I watched it together with some of our Fire Island housemates uh last, last summer last yeah. summer. And so it felt so fresh on the tip of my tongue that I didn't have any desire to watch it again because I had felt like I had just watched it. I didn't feel like there was anything new for me to discover about it, you know. Mm-hmm. And um 
And I think I kind of, in a way, took for granted that our audience would feel the same based on the fact that you are so much younger than me and have Mm -hmm. an equally close personal connection to the movie. And I found that to be true of many gays in that generation uh, after mine uh, Mm -hmm. that I've been friends with who also have like a really close personal connection to this movie, you know? Yeah, um, totally. And so to me, it just kind of felt like in this way, like too obvious or something, you know? Um, well, yeah, as you said, it's 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 not very far off the beaten path, which is so true. Uh, but it was just one of those things. I love, we talk about this movie so much and I talk about it just in my daily life so much yeah. that I just, it's almost like I need to like exercise the first wife's club demon out of me. You know, it's like, I need to talk about it so we can move on with our lives, you know, because I feel like it's just this specter just kind of hanging over everything, uh, in my, you know, the Bette Midler of it all. I mean, uh, not to mention Goldie. Um, uh, then with Bette comes the whole, uh, Mark Shaman, who's also, in uh, involved in this movie and and, and in um, very very many of the other uh things that we talk about including most recently jackie's back jackie's back and the jennifer lewis and after watching this movie last night i went on this deep youtube journey all these interviews with the ladies and i saw bet on rosie and they talk at length about their love of jennifer lewis and mark shaman and bet tells about her history with both of them and how they worked with her for so long and mm. Um, here's the thing though we're not exercising it this is what I realized watching it like we are now actually doing an important service because do you know how low it's rating is on Rotten Tomatoes yeah it's like in the 50s or something right yeah I didn't realize that it was so poorly received because I remember that it had been a big hit well yeah it was the week it was released it was opposite some like diehard movie or something and it was still number one at the box office made millions and millions of dollars uh, was a huge, huge hit. Um, but so, but yeah, they would movie, never let them make a sequel of it. Well, there, apparently, there's now in more recent years, there's been a lot of uh, 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 starts at that project. And the, according to Goldie, the problem most recently with the sequel was that they hadn't figured out what it should be about yet, and that the scripts that they had to work with were not good enough. Mm. Um, but apparently now there is, there is support for them or there has been, here's the thing though. This is our important public service. It is time to take the narrative away from the patriarchy that wrote this movie off when it came out in 1996. Mm. And it is time for us to firmly place it in the pantheon of certainly the iconic gay classic movies that have stood the test of time and have been influential for generations and will continue to be popular. You know, yeah. I mean, in a way, part of what I think prevented maybe the critics from getting on board, besides, frankly, their own misogyny, is that The First Wives Club is a depiction of the 90s in such a um, candy-colored way that it, yeah. it almost feels more like a movie of the 80s, you know? And it's so 90s. It's, but the thing I, is, I just could not get over that watching it again. But it's it treats the 90s in this way that in the 90s, people loved to treat the 80s, but they were not really ready to talk, to look at, at their own decade that way. When yeah. you were 
like, I think a film critic or like an art student or like an intellectual in the nineties, not you and me as these like nascent gays, you, I don't even want to know how old you were in 96, but like me at like age 20, you know, Mm -hmm. not for us, but for other people. And it's certainly within the patriarchy. I think that you wanted the nineties to be about something that was, uh, edgier or more political or, um, you know, uh, frankly, more diverse, possibly like something that had more of a message, something that was grungier. I don't think that they were ready to accept this sort of like, um, kind of innocent portrayal of the nineties as this just kind of like glossy, commercialized era but now to anyone watching it in 2020 of course that's what the fucking 90s were i don't think there's any beef about that and i think that you watch this and it just completely works as a picture of that time and so it in that respect i think if you and i went back and i read these bad reviews that the movie got and they're just missing the forest for the trees whatever they're complaining about fails to pay heed to the fact that you have these three incredible movie stars. I mean, Mm -hmm. Bette Midler and Diane Keaton and Goldie Hawn can each be called many things, but one thing that they are more than actresses, more than singers, more than whatever you want to call them. They are legitimate movie stars. And they They are are movie stars stars who have succeeded with big commercial movies that were terrific commercial projects that, you know, it's, it's one thing to say the word commercial as a criticism of some piece of trash that doesn't work, you know, but Bette Midler and Goldie Hawn and Diane Keaton have each at several points in their career starred in big box office blockbusters that were great movies. Maybe they weren't artistic films, although maybe some of them have done artistic films too. But they have starred in movies that are everything you want a commercial movie to be, right? That were vehicles for them and their movie star personas. And what this movie does so incredibly well, possibly better than anything before or since, is it manages to be a vehicle for each of them in their unique individual movie persona all at the same time, so complementary to each other. I mean, yes. it's just I the mean, most satisfying thing to experience. There are so many moments where I wrote down, like, this just works like gangbusters. I mean, it's like a perfect, it's like Neapolitan ice cream. Or like, yes, yes. Each, each of the flavors they're bringing to the yes. recipe just combines to create the most delicious, delicious finished product. Um, and it's funny you said that about the 90s because... I've seen this movie dozens and dozens of times. I mean, this is up there for me with, uh, you know, Some Like It Hot, What's Up Doc, these movies that I've seen probably in, in the 50s and 60s of times. And But this time I was watching it, you know, I was taking notes and literally smoke was like rising from my notebook because I was, <laughs> I was just crawling so fast. Um, but I realized for me, not only is it such a great movie and, and so well-loved um, and just so funny. And like you're saying, the star power and the star quality that they bring to it each with their own unique offering, but there's a bit of nostalgia uh, in it for me as well, because the whole nineties thing I was in 96, I was in 
second grade, I guess. Wow. And so not only was this, you know, a, a movie that appealed to me, even though I did not even, I don't even know if I knew what gay was at the time. Like, I don't remember when Ellen's time cover came out, but that was, was when after I, this. Okay. So that's when I figured out what gay was when I saw that time cover. So at this point, I didn't know what gay meant. And it's kind of like, you know, a lot of gays say with the wizard of Oz, this movie really connected with me and spoke to me and I was obsessed with it, but I couldn't really pinpoint why, aside from the fact that I just thought it was entertaining. But, um, I had taken my first bet journey with Hocus Pocus, I guess, which was a couple years before that. And I had loved bet and Sarah Jessica Parker in that movie, Mm. especially Sarah Jessica. I was so obsessed with her, you know, I had a crush on her, but I also wanted to be her. Uh, her little uh, song in Act Two, it's Come Little Children. I, I was always obsessed with that, and I would rewind the tape over and over and watch her sing that. And of course, I thought Bet was so fabulous and funny. So, oh, and I knew Goldie, of course, because my parents, uh, when we were little, we would always watch Seems Like Old Times and Foul Play, Overboard. I loved Goldie. So when First Wives Club came out, I remember my mom going to see it at the theater, but she wouldn't let me go with her because she said it was an adult movie. Mm -hmm. I think she even told me it was like rated R and she was like, it's just not appropriate for kids. I was devastated. I just wanted to see bet on the big screen so bad. So then when it came out on uh, videotape, I remember because I remember renting the very Brady sequel Mm -hmm. And the preview for First Wives Club was at the beginning of that tape. And so I knew it was out on video. Mm. And so I did my research and I saw that it was only PG. So I told my mom, I was like, mom, this is only PG. There's no way you can stop me from seeing this. And she was like, (laughs) okay, fine. So I remember going to Rave Review, uh, which was our video store downtown Tecumseh, Oklahoma. Oh, my God. And renting First Wives Club. And I went back in my parents' bedroom and watched it by myself. And I finished it, rewound it, and watched it immediately again. Wow. So I was, of course, obsessed with the ladies. And, I, I, and of course, going through it this time, there's so many things, like misheard lines, things that I didn't understand at the time. I literally don't think I knew what lesbian meant. Wow. I, I did not know what that meant. But I love this movie so much that uh, the, the end, you don't know me, of course, I, I was already, I died for a musical number. So that spring at the church talent show, my friend Ryan and me, who also, he was a, a devotee of the church of Bet, for the church talent show, we somehow convinced our parents to let us dress up basically in drag with wigs. And I went to the Salvation Army downtown and got us white outfits. Uh, and we dressed up as Bet and Goldie. We did not have a Diane, sadly. And performed You Don't Own Me with microphones at the church talent show. <laughs> and my mom has video of it. And I watched it the last time I went home. And I have to say, like, I was I was giving it, honey. I need to see this. Yes. Um, um, I, I always ask my mom to send it to me, but she hasn't yet. So. Yeah, how, how convenient. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, it is funny to think about Sarah Jessica Parker right on the cusp of Sex in the City. You know? Yeah, yeah. Like, she had, like, outgrown her, like, juvenile status, like, in the 80s, you know? Yeah, and like, she girls was, just like, want to have fun. You know, they tried to kind of make her like a Hollywood leading lady. And, you know, when she did that movie, 
with well, Indecent Proposal. Is that the one? Or no, she's in the other one, the dumber one. Like, uh, uh, honeymoon in Vegas. No, what am I thinking? Oh, of? Uh, leaving last. Uh, honeymoon in Vegas. Honeymoon yeah, in Vegas. You know, like so that was cute. And then there was like, you know, they were giving her some stuff, and she was like showing she could do stuff. But I don't think they were like, you know, they weren't quite making her like the next Meg Ryan or anything, right? Um, you know, and and then this was sort of like you know this and Mars Attacks, where she sort of had these like funny oh, kind of Mars like Attack, yeah. you know bimbo kind of like bit. Part, not bit parts, but, you know, feature roles in these, like, big casts. But, um, you know, then Sex and the City made her just this player, you know? Yeah. Um, but, but so, of course, she's so good in this. But shall we dive in? Let's dive in. I really want to go through... I'm so glad. I really want to go through this one uh, scene by scene. Yes. Because uh, there's just so much to say. Um, one more thing I wanted to say before we dive in. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the soundtrack to this movie was i think one of the first cassettes i ever purchased it was so funny we actually my family and i were going to a screening of the wizard of oz on the big screen and we stopped for breakfast before that and they were doing this christmas giveaway this raffle drawing i remember that day i won a walkman a cassette walkman and of course this was around the same time of first wise club and this was the tape i would Hmm walk around my house listening to of course you don't own me over and over and over that was the only track i really listened to what else was there besides billy porter's song now i i love uh sisters are doing it for themselves oh right because there's right i forgot how movie soundtracks work there's actual there's real wives lovers like there's real songs on it yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) it's not a cast recording But this was like my first taste of, you know, I was obsessed with that song and the musical number. And so I learned the choreography and that's what inspired, you know, the church performance. Anyway, so with that said, the movie starts with, um, and what's the song called? Uh, I think it's called Wives and Lovers. It's it's, Wives and Lovers. Yeah. Wives Should Always Be Lovers too is the hook. Yes. That iconic uh, sound at the beginning. Little girl. Little girl. Uh, The Paramount logo comes on. And then, of course, we see... The credits, uh, Scott Rudin, of course, uh, Balls of Pure Gold. The pop art title sequence, which is a little hint at a lot of the aesthetic of the movie. Yeah. And then, of course, just like in Jackie's Back, bombarded with just a plethora uh, of uh, stars that are in this. You know, whether they're playing bit parts, supporting roles, or cameos, there is so many... Oh, famous, yeah. Oh, yeah. famous actors yeah. and, and personalities in this film. Totally. So then we get to the graduation, and I always forget, like, Diane's kind of the central character in this. She's the narrator. Uh, she's kind of the one who uh, brings everything together. It's her idea. It's very um, Desperate Housewives, like, what's yeah, her name? Mary yeah, Mary Alice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, I guess if it were really Desperate Housewives, it would be Stucker Channing narrating. But, 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 mm-hmm. but Diane mm-hmm. Keaton has a Mary Alice quality about her. That's actually really, maybe it would have been better if Stockard would have been narrating. That would have been kind of fab. Or depressing. Yeah. I mean, this is the first note I had. Well, no, well, what, well, okay. This is the first, let's just say it's the first note I had. Um, that like, the, I, what I was thinking about, like watching it last night that I don't think was part of my thought process back in the day with it was like. Stockard gives them the pearl necklaces, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I'm uh-huh, uh-huh. and I'd like to no, I wouldn't. Um, you know, mm-hmm. and like, but like, she was was she were they four friends 
who all grew apart and then the three of them got back together because Stockard died? Or was Stockard always a little on the outside? I mean, I know she was a little on the outside because she's a depressive and all that jazz. Yeah. Um, and she didn't sing the way they did, although arguably Stockard sings as well as, you know, some of them. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, whatever. But, uh, but or it's it just funny, like, was, like that she gave them the necklaces. Like, I don't know. I just, I, maybe it doesn't matter at all. I'm not sure why I'm hung up on this question. But I want to know. Say, I see what you're saying. And there are several parts in this film, like the necklaces. Uh, there's a lot of parts throughout the film that they allude to the fact that it's Christmas for no reason. I, I think it's because there was a lot of this film that was cut. In the end, uh, yeah. it was like over three hours long and people said it was so horrible. It was so bloated and didn't make sense. And yeah. so they had to cut a lot of this film and really trim it down to the final product we see now. Yeah. So I think a lot of these details, like the necklaces, probably pay, played a bigger role in the original cut. There was probably maybe more scenes or, or more dialogue having to do with that. I have a note somewhere. I can't find it now, but I'm sure we'll get to it. Because in my reading about it while I was watching last night, I, uh, of course, on pause, uh, some well-known actor had a cut scene that I was like, oh, I want to see that. Oh, yeah. It was, uh, it's um, John Stewart. He played yes, uh, yes. Elise's, Elise's younger boyfriend. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Thank you. And apparently those, all those scenes were cut because that was like a B plot line and it really just made everything too long. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so the, the flashback college scene is first and this is truly a lip sync for your life performance. I mean, I didn't realize this at the time, but now of course we know all the girls who are wonderfully cast, they look exactly like their older actress counterparts. Mm-hmm. Um, they're basically lip syncing to audio that Bet Diane and Goldie all recorded because that's actually their voices being used. Amazing. I actually didn't know that, or if I did, I forgot. Um, yeah. They do a great job. They also, job. some of them are so, like the Goldie um, really has Goldie's face. She does. And like, I recognize her from somewhere. That somewhere. girl's been in other stuff. Like if they hadn't, if, like, I think I, when I put this on, I was like, oh, right, it starts with their graduation. And then I was like, why the fuck isn't it Kate Hudson? And then I'm like, that face is why it's not Kate Hudson. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and the bet has, like, such really, like, such a bet attitude. Although, yeah. <laughs> the funny thing is that the TV show The View started shortly after this. And, oh, really? Wow. And I remember thinking, like, oh, Joy Behar, I've seen her because she played young Bette Midler in First Wives Club. <laughs> and, then, and then I bought the VHS tape, you know, around that time. And I was like, oh, no, that's not Joy Behar. But, but Joy um, Behar could play Bette. And what's funny, <laughs> now I feel so stupid because I literally wrote down, the one that plays young Stalker does an excellent job capturing the way Stalker talks. <laughs> because yeah. how do you do a Stalker Channing impression? But she really nails it. So then, okay, then we get to the stalker of it all. And Brilliant. I used to think this, this scene... This should have been nominated. This scene, yeah, totally. I used to be obsessed with this scene as a kid. I thought this was just the epitome of glamour. Yes, like, oh my walking, God. Yes. Walking yes. around in a white robe with a with a glass of vodka and a yes. cigarette. And the fur coat on the penthouse terrace. Oh, throwing newspapers up in the air. I mean, there's like an Elizabeth Taylor yes, quality yes, to this yes, scene. Yes. It's like Elizabeth and all those old melodramas. And then she... She asks, you know, the maid, the housekeeper to send these final letters. And then 
She uh, wait, wait, that wait. shot of her stepping up on that bench, putting that drink down. I have such vivid memories of first seeing that shot as a kid. Oh my god! Um, wow. Uh, so this was your first suicide. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just like I I have the exact same experience watching it that I did back then, which is just that she is so brilliant. I mean, yeah. First of all, just like the way she her hand shakes. Like yeah, someone and the tears. Who, like it's so fully realized, and the way that she waves, she gives like kind of like a bitch wave to yeah, like, the like a little on the nod, life cycle yeah. or the stairmaster or whatever. I mean, Stalker just plays this scene for real. I mean, you know, you could say what you want. I mean, I love this movie so much, and I want to reclaim it from those hater critics that just didn't get it. But yeah. like. You know, I still understand that it's still maybe not on par with some of the most like artistic Brilliant film comedies, of yeah. some, or or you know just like whatever. But like when Stockard is doing her scene, it absolutely can hold its own with any film ever. You know, totally. And the and just her choices, like the way she flicks her cigarette off the balcony and then just kind of stares off into space, and you know it's going to happen. It's like. I mean, it's, yeah. Truly I don't know brilliant. if Stockard ever was suicidal in her life, but I do know that she has taken pills and had too much to drink in the morning and yeah. stood on a yeah. penthouse terrace in a fur coat with a cigarette. Like, yes. she is, this moment is not like something she had to like research. Yeah, yeah. She was, it was, it was method acting, hon. And also, I have to, sh- speaking of movies of the 90s, that the woman that plays her maid, Lucy, is Aida Linares, who also was... Sorry, the woman that plays her maid, Teresa, is Aida Linares, who also played the maid, Lucy, in Clueless. Who oh. uttered, When she's like, la, 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 my, dry, is it dry, my dress is at the dry cleaners. And she's like, okay, I call them. <laughs> I mean... Last last week's episode with Dublin Zotrope, we were talking about his brilliant post about the ladies of the hours trading cards. Yes. This is the deck of cards I would want even more. It would be the ladies of the First Wives Club. Because not only would we get, you know, all the leading ladies, but we'd also get these ancillary ladies like the maid, Teresa. Yes. And yes. the lady on the life cycle. Um, Daniel, Leah don't, De- even, Leah don't even pitch yeah. it. You and I are doing this. We're selling We're it, it on Etsy. This is our new like money day job. It's like copyright, copyright right yeah. here. Yeah. We're copywriting it on Brilliant. air. Absolutely. Um, okay, so uh, cut to Diane. Cut to Diane and the voicemail from Eileen. Oh my God! I mean, if you're talking about the cards, surely, I mean, <laughs> surely. I mean, I think in some ways, even more than Stockard, even more than Maggie Smith, Eileen might be the fourth principal character in this movie. And this was her last film performance before she died. Uh, I mean, just it's, it's funny because I had it going back to me in my moment of seeing this movie and being obsessed with it when it came out, directing Ruthless, I had watched the films that were the inspiration because Ruthless is a takeoff the musical Ruthless is a takeoff on these different classic movies, including, uh, well, Gypsy, but also um, uh, All About Eve and also mm-hmm. um, Valley of the Dolls. And most prominently as a plot, it is a takeoff on The Bad Seed in yes. which Eileen Heckert plays a, That's uh, right. a important role. 
So uh, I just was having a deep moment of discovery of her that has never left me. And it's amazing when you go back and w- go back and watch The Bad Seed, how little Eileen actually changed in those years. And my big mistake is that the universe gave me this moment of inspiration of finding Eileen in The Bad Seed and in The First Wives Club. And about two years later, I was living in New York City and Eileen was starring off-Broadway in the original production of Kenneth Lonergan's The Waverly Gallery. Mm-hmm. And I did not go see it. And mm-hmm. then I eventually saw the play when it was done on Broadway last year, starring amazing Elaine May in yes, that role. Yes, that's right. But it is really a great regret of mine that I didn't see Eileen in the original because I knew how wonderful she was from this movie where she's really... It, I mean, like Sockard... Eileen is never as hilarious and crazy and over the top as she kind of is. It's always for real. Everything it's always that she does. Truth. Yeah, she's always playing for truth. And she, I mean, there are so many lines, wonderful, wonderful lines that she's given, and she delivers them to perfection. And not and not for nothing. And it's a skill that she is allowed to have because she's one of the greats of the old school. Yeah. We would not tolerate this from anybody else. But whatever pace the scene is at, <laughs> yeah. Eileen will just grind it to a halt. Grinding halt. And take her fucking sweet ass time. Sweet ass time, honey. And it is all for the better. Yeah, 100%. Um, okay, so then we meet another lady, uh, Chris, Diane's daughter. And like I said, this was the first time I ever heard uh, the term lesbian. I did not know what that meant. Um, and Daniel, you know, that is not as much a reflection of how young you were when this came out. As as you pointed out, Ellen had not come out yet. This right. movie was actually on the other side of that cultural divide when gayness became ubiquitous in pop culture in America. And I think that something I realized watching this movie last night, and it's probably part of why people like me and even you, maybe on a subconscious level at your age, part of why it meant so much to us was that it was actually really wonderful the way that this movie handles this issue. This Mm -hmm. girl coming out to her mom is handled so casually you yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that is a huge step because there had been gay representations in pop culture, pop culture up until this moment, but they were always heavy handed. And that's not even yeah. a criticism of them because so much, I mean, certainly in the 80s, you know, it was just so shocking to even have that because if you go back before the 80s, they were only ever there as the butt of a joke, you know? Yeah. Certainly in anything mainstream at all, you know? Although, I will, I mean, speaking of Eileen, who was uh, a prominent guest star in Mary Tyler Moore, there is that Mary Tyler Moore episode where uh, Phyllis's brother is gay and Phyllis doesn't know it. And in the end, like the final uh, moment of the episode, Rhoda's like, oh, he's gay, didn't you know? And then it's like cut to the credits. So like there was these really brave, I mean, female-led, you know, comedies that uh, even back then were kind of uh, breaking this mold and, and addressing these issues yeah. in a casual way. Right. Um, but this, well, this is, I didn't know that, but, but, but I mean, that's, that sounds no, like that was saying. an afterthought a little bit at the end of the episode, you know, that they didn't rub your nose in it the whole time. Probably right. a lot of people were watching it might have also not realized it until she said that, you know, um, 
Whereas this is clearly going to be a plot point in the movie. And uh, it, it is so casual. And and she is, so it's not about her having problems as a lesbian or anything going on in her life that is at all in friction. And she tells her mom with such confidence and indeed chill. And, yeah. and Diane's reaction to it is absolutely great. I mean, she's yeah. befuddled in the Diane Keaton way that she deliciously is befuddled about. Yeah, befuddled is a good word. So many things in her life. But she's nothing but loving and accepting and supportive, you know? And um, it's, uh, it's just wonderful. It's really wonderful. And, um, and also it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's great because you watch this scene and every moment of it down to the interior design, the, the production design yes, yes. of the kitchen. I wrote down, I love this kitchen. But it's it's one in a long line of fabulous kitchens in Diane Keaton movies. Yeah, and fabulous clothes. And I have to say, uh, Diane in this scene, she's wearing these high-waisted pants that like basically go up to her armpits. And I feel like she's wearing clothes from her own closet, which I know she famously does on films. Well, if she isn't, then there are things she would have wanted in her own closet that fit the production design of the movie and also her personal. Right. She definitely had a hand. I mean, the, the, the glasses, I know they're, that's what I'm getting at in this scene. You know, we haven't seen Bette or Goldie yet. And we are right now in a completely successful Diane Keaton vehicle. That is in no way compromised by the fact that these other people are going to be coming and sharing equal billing in a minute, you know? Yes, exactly. Um, There's this shot of the three of them at the premiere and Diane is still wearing those same glasses, same hairstyle. So this is, yeah, this is just Diane in her world. But I mean, and to a lesser extent, that can then be said even fashion-wise for Goldie and Bette too, you know? And it's like part of what was so wonderful, I think it was a year or two after this when they presented together at the Academy Awards. Yeah. And... You know, and it's it's like in a way they're always um, they're they're such a perfect trifecta, and you know they 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 each have their own brand that fits so complementarily with the other two. Yeah. Yes, and I uh, Diane. Whereas Diane, though, I feel is so Diane in this movie, and even Goldie playing a little bit more of a diva than I'm sure she is. In real life, I do feel like Bet is definitely they 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 make her dowdier than she is and more normy. You know, I feel like in real life, Bet, you know, at the time she she had the blonde hair. Obviously, this is a wig, but you know, they make her kind of a a normal frumpy housewife. Yes, Whereas yes. in real life, I feel like no, Bet no, is just very like true, very glamour. True. But the thing is, but we, that's, that's because we have information. I mean, this fits the persona Bette Midler plays in movies. It's just not her persona as a diva star, as opposed to Goldie and Diane, where their on-screen persona is more interchangeable with sort of their star persona. Yes, exactly. Um, But that's, that's more specific to Bette's career too, you know, but also, I mean, we haven't like necessarily gotten there yet, but you know, it talks in terms of who plays it for real. I think that for sure, if it, on that spectrum, the bottom of the barrel, only only above Elizabeth Berkeley, maybe, yeah. would be <laughs> Bette Midler. I mean, I, there's moments in this movie where she actually reminds me of Lorna Luft. Like, Uh-oh. it's just, I mean, I love Bette and she's fabulous in this movie. But like when Bette gets broad, Bette gets cartoony. 
And there that's, are a lot of those moments for sure. You know, and that's some, and you know, it's obviously Bet is given the broadest assignment. You yeah. know, Diane never gets cartoony like that, but on the other hand, like Diane's comedy at its broadest is still subtle in comparison to Bet's. Yeah, you know. Um, and Goldie's maybe somewhere in the middle on that scale. But nonetheless, I mean, Bet will just make faces that, you know, if Angela Lansbury thought of them, she would have rejected them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but exactly. Bet goes there, you know. I mean, the things Bet does with her eyes, it's it's truly incredible. I mean, she does these little squints and then she does this thing where like she doesn't move her eyebrows, but she just kind of like opens her eyes really like flashes her eyes really quickly. I can't describe it any other way. And that's like a trick it's that a she trick. learned. Yes. It's a trick that she's learned and, and has practiced um, and honed honey, down to a the science. The word for that trick is shtick. Shtick. Yes. And it's it her was, I honestly, it, I feel there are moments in my own performing, not that I'm a performer on the scale of bet by any means, but I feel that I do that kind of mugging. And I actually had a moment watching this where I was like, Maybe Jews just can't really act. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't, because I, I've also noticed it, uh, as I told you, I'm uh, in a deep Marilyn Monroe place right now. So I've been watching a lot of Marilyn movies, and that's what Marilyn did, too. It's like she had all these tricks she would do with her eyes to, like, you know, make love to the camera or whatever. And I feel like that is an old school trick on film to do, and I feel like Bet picked it up somewhere along the way. Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, it's just like, you know, Goldie San is as as movie star as you could want her to be, but she doesn't quite, like, <laughs> go for, like, some of those, like, like almost two-dimensional moments, yes. you know? So, anyway, okay, going into the Goldie part. Yes. So, um, okay, so then we go to Elise in the Chair with Rob Reiner, mm. and I feel like each lady is given... Maybe a couple, but each lady, I feel like, is given a really great monologue that we still quote uh, years after the fact. And yeah. I feel like this is Goldie's 100. monologue. You know, um, when she talks about ladies in Hollywood, you know, there are three ages, babe, district attorney, and driving Miss Daisy. Yeah. And also, I think that we, we need to give credit where it's due here, because, you know, now in the era of... Real Housewives and and everything else that we live in, you know, some of this is some of this is so just like everywhere you look that like we kind of take it for granted these jokes about like mm-hmm. Botox and all that shit. But like this was like a little bit. I mean, in fact, these injectable fillers were still something of a new fad. I yeah, think, you know, and like it was actually kind of brave for Goldie to with so little vanity embrace this thing that was actually not all that different from her true life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and do it so mercilessly and just go for the comedy. But by the way, for real, I mean, when he tells her she's an alcoholic, I looked in Goldie's eyes in this scene and I felt like she was playing that moment for real. Yeah. She was playing a human being who may or may not be an alcoholic, but definitely drinks too much and is already aware of it and doesn't want to be told that and by yeah, somebody. does not want to hear that. You know, but also all. is like in the doctor's chair and listening to good advice from somebody whose job it is to give it to her. You know, it was layered and it was yeah. full of human feeling. And it was subtle because it was not what the moment stopped and had to then become all about. The moment was just sort of a 
brief transition from one topic to another, you know, as well it should be within the script. But like Goldie filled it with the full human experience. And it was really, it's so engaging because it actually, I mean, in a way more even than Diane, at this point in the movie, I care about Goldie the most. Mm, And it reminds me how this point, you know, I'd grown up on Goldie Hawn a little bit, not like you. I mean, I had seen Foul Play. I don't think I had seen Seems Like Old Times until you and I watched it last summer. But if I had watched it in the 80s, I'd watched it once and forgotten about it. You know, I mean, the movie that I loved Goldie Hawn in growing up was Overboard and also, to a lesser extent, Private Benjamin. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think there might have been a couple other Goldie Hawn movies that I was like really into at the time, but maybe not. You know, she was almost more of an entity that I was like very familiar with, but she was, you know, she was not something that I was like deeply connected to. And yeah. um uh and then this movie came out and I was already obsessed with Diane Keaton because of Annie Hall and and not to mention the fact that growing up movies like Baby Boom Oh, Baby been, Boom, yeah. I had watched Baby Boom many more times than I watched Overboard, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think there were other Diane Keaton movies, too. And Bette Midler, I mean, Beaches was my movie, Get the Fuck Out of Town, Don't Talk to Me. Beaches mm, was yeah, my movie. Beaches. Beaches was my movie. Beaches was my movie. And several other Bette things along with Beaches, you know? And then at this point in my life when First Wise Club first wives club came out i was in a very very deep bet midler journey of bet midler the diva bet midler the singer you know yes yes so i was going to this movie already hook line and sinker you know just like suckling the teat of bet and diane <laughs> you know really and truly i mean not to mention i was going through a big the godfather moment at this point in my emotional mm. film watching journey and like diane was someone i loved in that you know right oh, up there right. with lorraine bracco and everybody else you know but oh, I, I I love The Godfather. I recently watched those. So great, but but Goldie was almost more a curiosity to me from well, that. And past. she also she there she went many years and and has since uh, where she didn't make a, a lot of movies. Right, and when people talk about Goldie Hawn's sort of cultural contribution, they would talk a lot about Laugh-In, which was Laugh-in, not my sure. era, not my thing, you know. So I was in a way kind of rediscovering Goldie Hawn when this movie came out in 1996. And I remember very distinctly falling for her and walking out of this movie theater changed. And if anything, more in love with Goldie than the other two. And then uh, not long after this is when the Woody Allen movie, Everyone Says I Love You, came out. Another movie movie where Goldie sang. And, you know, that movie wasn't nearly, nearly, nearly as good as First Wives Club. But... That movie is so crazy. But it completed my journey of just being like, Goldie Hawn is my diva. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I cried into my pillow, almost literally, about the fact that she wasn't going to be in the movie of Chicago. You know, and how disappointed I was when I finally got my hands on a VHS of Goldie and Liza. What's it called? Liza and Goldie together at last or whatever it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just how, what a disappointing stinker it is. I mean, we should definitely corn stream it sometime. It's like wh- th- those ladies deserve our attention, even for their worst accomplishments. But 
that is among their worst accomplishments, you know, which was disappointing because I so wanted there to be a fabulous variety show where Goldie, like, you know, does a Sondheim medley, you know? And this wasn't it. Anyway, all just to say that I was watching this Falling in Love with Her all over again last night. Right. She's a brilliant comedian. I mean, and that's how she started out, as we know, in Laugh-In. But in this movie especially, she just has such great, like, reactions and, and... just some well, of her comedian physical, is the right word when she, physical, it's comedy. physical comedy it's the next scene it skips over bet but when goldie with the insane insane duck lips fresh out of the injection when she goes to the newsstand when she finds out that um cynthia Cynthia, died and she says to the news guy morning mohammed yeah morning mohammed that is i mean it's i mean that's that's film history i mean that's film history that's yes uh Okay, so let's go. So then, of course, we uh, meet Bet, who all we find out about her really is that she likes to snack. And she has a son named Jason, which just kills me. I mean, a Jewish mother with a son named Jason. It's just the Barbara of it all. Is well, so funny. also, the son named Jason planning the bar mitzvah. It's very falsetto. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. Um, so then we cut to the funeral where Elise shows up with Ganilla, a.k.a. Maggie Smith, who is not that old here, but, like, when I first saw this movie, I thought Maggie Smith was, like, surely near death. Like, I thought Maggie Smith was, like, 90 or something. I mean, Maggie always looked so old to me. And now, of course, she's still old, like, playing, you know, uh, this 90-year-old baroness well, it's, or whatever. It's, on it's funny Downton. now because, like, at the time... I don't know if Ma- Maggie must have been like in her sixties, you yeah. know, and like now she's ninety and she's kind of still playing the same age. You yeah, know? it's like I feel like she really did play the same type for three yeah. decades. Yeah. Um, okay, so then of course the funeral happens and a lot of great lines. I feel like um, honey, she's a quilt. I feel like that was like a Paul Rudnick edition. Yeah. Maybe oh, I didn't know that he punched this up because I was I about think to he say did. we have to pay respect that the script is by Robert Harling who wrote yes. uh, Steel Magnolias. Yes, Steel Magnolias. And, um, it, and Soap Dish. And Soap. I mean, and this is just, you know, it, this deserves to be honored at least in as high terms as those movies are. Because even just when you think about the way that this film just clips along, the fact that we have now met all three women and now they're going to run into each other at the funeral, it's done the right amount of time and energy is spent in the perfect degree with each yeah, of them. Yeah, introduction. So then, and I don't know if this is if that was a Paul Redding thing, but I think I have read somewhere that he punched it up, but he didn't want credit. Sure. Uh, By the way, gay, another gay uh, classic moment, the fact that the funeral home, Frank E. Campbell, is where Judy Garland famously was uh, laid to rest. Oh, I did not know that. I didn't even know that was like a real funeral home. I thought that was just a name they made up. Mm. Okay, so then afterwards they all run into each other. I just love when Bet is like, uh, lunch? And then she's like, I have a car. And Bet just says, a limo. <laughs> I mean, I, it's, I, it's, this is where Bet gets to be a little too much for me when she like goes into like a like hammy, like clowny voice. I, mean, <laughs> I like it. Like that <laughs> moment, that moment is, is, is sort of like okay, because like maybe the character is like doing a little bit of a bit. But I just feel like so often she like does a funny voice instead of like finding a truthful way to get the same laugh. In the ne- yes, in the next scene, I see what you're saying in the next scene with her like trying to quote like play drunk. That's that gets a little uh, too much for me. But I also but have this- to say before we get too far into that scene, also that when they first order their drinks, 
Oh my god! And oh my god! The this moment. Is, the timing is so perfect. Okay, it's. Because in the order of them ordering them, which is Diane, then <laughs> Bette, and then Goldie, do you want to play one of the parts and I'll do I'll do the other two? Okay, why don't you be you start it out and then I'll go next and then you finish it. Okay, so you're so you're Bette and I'm Diane and Goldie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you be the waiter. Can I get you a drink? Uh can I get you any drinks? Oh, so Diane's, you know, she does her day. Well, Virgin Mary. Bloody Mary. Vodka rocks. Now, <laughs> this thing so perfectly, like, just encapsulates, like, the complementariness of these women as yeah. these characters. And it, if anything was ever a fucking musical comedy song lyric for three women <laughs> in a musical, it was these three drinks ordered in a row. Yeah. And it made me just want to say to all the different artists who have failed in creating the musical version of First Wives Club, which continues to be stalled and look more hopeless than ever at ever making it to Broadway. I want to say shame on you. This Mm. movie cries out to be the biggest musical comedy hit since Hairspray, since the producers. Fuck you and the horse you rode in on and your big bag of bullshit for not doing this right. I mean, these a lot of these famous lines from this movie could literally just be lifted and uh, copied pasted into a, a track list. Yeah, like a literal running list of the songs. Um, also, I have to give a little plug to our uh, former guest, Faith Prince, uh, who we did an episode with back in the day. And she talks a lot about her process in being cast as Brenda in the First Wives Club musical. And it's a really fun story about her audition. So go back and listen to that if you haven't. And and Faith um, is great casting. And there have yes. been some great people. I know Mary Testa played that part in another incarnation. Oh, and um, uh, there was somebody else that I thought was like really interesting that has done it. Um, you know, of course, when the movie first came out, I used to have fantasies about Patty, Betty, and Bernadette doing the musical version. Um, oh, yeah. Although one thing I realized watching this now, and it's in a way a heartbreaking lesson I've had to learn about. Well, first of all, now they're all too old. But uh, it's one thing that I've had to be heartbroken about many times over the years about Patty is that Patty would not be good as Brenda. Patty actually would be much funnier as Elise, even though that's not who we want to think of her as. I think, I don't know. I think Patty would be good as Brenda. I, I don't know. I, I think that, um, I don't think so. But anyway, now they're all too old. But yeah. it really, and honestly, speaking of Mark Shaman and speaking of Hairspray, the team that should have musicalized yes, this yes, should 100%. have been Mark Shaman writing music and Mark Shaman co-writing lyrics with, with, Scott with Scott Whitman. Yeah. That is who should have done this. And the problem is that they, the team that actually did write the songs was, uh, well, I don't even know if they wrote them. I think it might have been all pre-existing songs, which is even worse. But it was Holland Dozier Holland, the famous songwriting team that wrote so many Motown hits, especially Mm. for the Supremes. Although they didn't write You Don't Own Me, which should have been the first uh, warning sign. Yeah. Like, why take this fabulous musical comedy and saddle it with either A, the undue responsibility, the burden of having to be a jukebox musical. Yeah. Which then has to idea. I'm I'm not saying jukebox musicals are all bad, but it's hard enough to put a good show together to tie those songs together. This movie, this story deserves songs that are tailor-made for it. Tailor-made. Yeah. Or if it was original material by them, 
why not let this story have a chance to be written by people that are honed veterans of musical comedy, not a team of pop songwriters that have to learn how to do it or possibly never will. Yeah. Anyway, um, off topic. Well, so this scene, you know, looking at it through the lens of at the time, like, you know, for me and a lot of other gay millennials, this is like our sacred text. And I'm like, was this scene integral to the now uh, cliche yet still very rampant and important uh, practice of gay brunch? Like, is this scene like something that we saw back in the day and we're like, oh, that's fabulous. And now over 20 years later, like we're like going to brunch with our girlfriends and drinking every weekend. I mean, was this something we saw and it's now translating to like a cultural practice that we all engage in because of this film? I don't think that's the case. Um, But I was thinking like, uh, I, I kept thinking, like, what are the other more recent, like, drunk lunches, like, in mo- drunk lunches or drunk lunches? Yeah, I was trying to think about that, too. That have, like, been inspired by this, you know? Yeah, because this, I mean, this scene, it's it goes on a while, and it cuts several times to where it's obviously later in the day yes, to the point where yes. people have cleared out. Diane is now not drinking a virgin drink. She's actually drinking wine, white wine. Uh, Ooh, I didn't even Goldie. catch that. So smart. Yeah. yeah. So Bet and Goldie are both sloshed. Um, I mean, the drunk, I mean, I think Goldie's brilliant. I think Bet's is a, a little heavy handed with yes. like her suddenly getting sleepy. But um, Goldie plays drunk so well. So and she well. does brilliant cigarette acting throughout yes. the whole movie. Yes, she does. Like, working with the prop of the cigarette, no one is better than Goldie. And my very favorite moment comes at a later scene, which we'll get to. But um, this is where I feel Bette gets her first really great monologue because she does that thing about um, he starts working out. He gets an earring. I say, Morty, what are you? A pirate? What's next? A parrot? And all of a sudden, I'm a big drag and I'm holding him back because I won't go rollerblading. Yeah. And then she says this line, uh, what's her name? She says, Shelly, Shelly the Barracuda. Yeah. And when I was little, I did not know what she was saying. I didn't know what she meant. And I thought like Shelly the Barracuda, like that was Shelly's last name. Like I thought she was giving like her full name. And when I was little in my weird, you know, obsession with this movie, I would take my little tape recorder and I would record myself oh my basically god. reciting the entire oh screenplay. Oh my god, I want that tape. Which I wish I had. But I would always get to that line, you know, just reciting it from memory. And I would always make up some last name for Shelly because I didn't know what Da Barracuda, what <laughs> oh, she was saying. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So um, that's uh, Bette's monologue. And then another line I love when she says, you're lying through your caps. Okay, blah, 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 blah. Well, that's, I mean, here's a famous one. Just when Diane is like, no, and we're, and lesbians are great. Oh, oh my God. Nowadays. (laughs) Yeah, lesbians are great nowadays. And Bette and Goldie, their look to each other and Goldie's little like puzzled look is divine. It's comedic brilliance. Yes. Another comedic brilliance is when we next scene cut to Diane in Dr. Leslie Rosen's office, yes. Marsha Gay Harden brilliant. looking fabulous. Yeah. Another brilliant scene. Um, get angry, Annie. It's okay. I mean, even this stuff, it's like, you know, 
I mean, now, and, and this was not groundbreaking in terms of its portrayal of psychotherapy, but this sort of like comedic treatment of that stuff and like the self-help movement and all that, it was kind of newish then, yeah, you know? Yeah. And yeah, now it shrink. seems like such a cliche, you know, but it's like so satisfying to go back because, go back because we get to see Marsha Gay Harden, like literally say the number one on the nose, like cliche things that could be said and it's like so earned in this story you know grow from love yeah (sighs) screw the world uh okay so and in this scene i have to say you know we all like to think you know who we are in in the grand scheme of things but more than anything in this scene i'm like oh wait i am an annie aren't i oh my god (laughs) okay so then the next scene i love it's them in at the conference table the divorce uh legal conference discussion whatever and do you recognize the lady who is playing Bill's attorney? Yes, it's Jay Smith Cameron. Who plays Jerry in succession. Yes, yes. So that's that's how I who I recognized her. And yeah. again, playing the same type of, of character she plays in succession. I'm glad you bring that funny. up because she's a New York theater actress. Um, oh, cool. And, uh, and she's married to, is it David Lindsay, a bear, some playwright. Oh, but, wow. Um, but she had just sort of started making her mark like in New York theater in the 90s. And, mm. and of course, Victor Garber was not that famous at the time that he was playing Bill um, in this. But it's like, not only is this an all-star sort of cavalcade of these like, um, you know, theater featured, actors, featured people. It's so many New York theater actors. It's really incredible. And it reminds me of two much less successful movies from the same era. One was, speaking of Paul Rudnick, the movie version of Jeffrey, Um, and the other is there was, I don't know if you've seen this movie because it was really bad, but it was, a James Lapine directed this, uh, comedy starring Nathan Lane and, um, oh God, now I can't remember who the other star was, but it was called Life with Mikey. Oh, is that the one with Michael J. Fox? Yes, Nathan Lane and Michael J. Fox. Yeah, yes, exactly. I have seen that. I like that movie. But you go back and watch that, and the whole cast is all, like, this. it's people from Falsettos and Into the Woods. Yeah. And, like, you know, it's all James Lapine's, like, New York theater, like, repertory company, essentially, you know? And- well, I don't know if that still happens nowadays, but reading all the articles about this movie, they said it was a very New York uh Film, New York set, you know, everything, all the cast and creative were people or the cast, no, I guess. The thing is, it happens way more nowadays because now so many movies and TV shows are filmed in New York. That started in the 90s with Sex in the City and The Sopranos. Um, right. And yeah. I guess, you know, maybe Giuliani had made some deal to encourage production or whatever, you know, but everything changed. Now there's so much stuff filmed here. And now, Everybody, even if you're like a chorus dancer in a Broadway show, chances are your agent is is sending you on auditions or you're submitting self-tapes to do film and television work. That was mm-hmm. not so common in the 80s and 90s and before that. So it was yeah, actually like I really guess that's unique. True. I mean, for me, as a theatrical, you know, a theater-obsessed uh, person, as a show queen in 1996, to see this movie and see all these faces and names that were familiar to me from my obsessing about Broadway was crazy. That was something that never happened. Yeah. Okay, so moving along. Oh, in that scene, my favorite cigarette moment Goldie does uh, whenever she says we require half the assets or whatever. 
And Goldie does this really shocked, taken aback expression, but she has a cigarette in her mouth. So she does the look, but then she lights her cigarette before and takes it out of her mouth before she speaks. It's so brilliant. Um, Okay. Then we cut to Duarto and Brenda at the store. Another uh, famous scene with our first glimpse of Sarah Jessica Parker where uh, she comes out and Brenda, why don't you try these on in, in your, your size? size. Now, Which I, I didn't catch that as a kid either. I never knew what she was saying. Oh, I so did. And I, whatever I said about Bet, like doing like her shtick, SJP like deserves the chance to do it to Bet here. And it is beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. SJP, I mean, speaking of shtick, she does so many little things that we think of as carry things now, but like her little SJP shriek and squeal, she drops those throughout the movie and it's, it's yeah. just so on the nose. Yeah. Um, okay. Then we get I mean, to the it's scene. Funny. It's actually, you raise an interesting point about this movie in general is that I don't know if there was a lot of improv or it's a testament to Robert Harling or the director, Hugh Wilson, or to things that Paul Rudnick added or how it came to be. But not only is this such an impressively perfect vehicle for the three ladies, Mm -hmm. it actually, like, across the board, these people are really, you know, Maggie Smith and Sarah Jessica Parker are absolutely given dialogue that allows them to shine in the house. Yeah. It's perfect casting. I mean, if, you know, we're talking about our um, deck of cards or whatever, if, if, uh, Brenda, Elise, and Annie are like, and Stockard are like the the kings, you yeah. know, whatever. Then I think the Jokers would have to be, and then maybe the men or whatever are the queens. I don't know. We'll have to figure it out. But <laughs> the Jokers are definitely Marsha Gay Harden, Sarah Jessica Parker, Elizabeth Berkeley, mm. and then uh, who's I don't know who the fourth one would well, be. But they're get, all you, you only get two Jokers. Oh, sorry. I meant Jax. I meant Jax. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. Um, so the three of them, maybe, then maybe the other one would be like uh, Duardo or someone. But uh, they are, you know, the other women or whatever. Mm. But they're each given such a specific uh, character with a specific totally. type. Totally. And they they each do it. So I mean, even Elizabeth Berkeley, I think she's so brilliant. Totally, in this movie she's and wonderful so in this funny. movie. And by the way, I mean Elizabeth Berkeley's character is interesting because she's not a bitch. Yeah, she's just bubbly and she's innocent. She's a fan of Elise. Yeah, it's a yeah this very kind of up and coming young star, very Marilyn. Um, and then of course Timothy Oliphant, who is oh, the director of the film. Now this he's a famous TV is star. So over the top. When he says, I mean, it's it's, oh it's, my God. it's earned because it's an it's it's an important it's it's not important as maybe heavy-handed, but it's it's a valid uh and only slightly exaggerated parody of how insane it is the way Hollywood rejects women over 35. But yeah, the fact yeah. that he calls her a Jurassic flesh bag. <laughs> In a wheelchair. <laughs> and the Crypt Keeper. The is Crypt so Keeper. Crazy. I think what, we're going for a grotesque. And she's like, what? <laughs> that um, scene is, is so fantastic. And, and Elise's reaction where she's like how do you see her and then he says that thing about jurassic flashback just so taken aback and and the way she kind of sips her drink is so brilliant then of course the next scene after uh, brenda has a quick scene 
And then we see Elise at the bar, Elise which is bar. one of the greatest, greatest scenes in the history of cinema. I mean, I think it's fair to say that when the Will and Grace writers were creating yes, yes, yes. between Karen and Smitty, Smitty, it, I mean, it 100% owes a great debt to this scene. This scene walked so Karen Walker's scene could run. Totally. Um, the, this is the Monique's mother. And, and again, Elise uh, Goldie's comic delivery is so on point. I don't even know if this was, I mean, I assume it was, it was planned, but it seems so spontaneous whenever she's uh, slurring her words, doing this brilliant scene where she says, uh, Shelly Winters is Monique's mother. Angela Lansbury is Unique's mother. And she drunkenly <laughs> says Unique instead of Monique. Oh my God, even hearing you recreate it just like takes me back to the comedy. <laughs> and then she plays drunk so well. And then of course she says the Sean Connery is Monique's boyfriend. I'm, 300 years old, but he's still a stud. I feel that I walked out of the movie theater in 1996 and having just seen this once, knew this scene by heart. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Truly memorable this and, like, and This is brilliant. like a Gary Herman song, but as an acting scene. Yes. This would be another great uh, number for Elise for oh, the oh musical. My oh my God. Called Monique's Mother. Okay. So then... Then, okay, the next scene By is... By the way, another fabulous New York actor, friend of the pod, Edward Hibbert, as the bartender. Sensational. Oh, yes, yes. Wait, he's friend of the pod? Yes. Oh, cool. Well, um, he's a friend of mine. I don't know if he's ever listened to the podcast, but... It's so funny, because I looked him up and I wrote down his name, but I didn't know who he was. He was the original Sterling uh, in Jeffrey, speaking of Paul Rudnick. Oh, and he plays And he plays some role in the movie, actually, too. Um... And he, uh, well, he's done many. He was in Noises Off with Patty on Broadway. Mm. And one of the greatest things I've ever seen, I emceed, right after Elaine Stritch died, they did this 54 Below pays tribute to Elaine Stritch. And I was the master of ceremonies. And um, Christine Ebersole was in it. And um, Beth Level and Hunter Ryan Herdlicka and um, a bunch of great people, Clea Blackhurst. And anyway, and... Edward Hibbert. And Edward Hibbert sang Why Do the Wrong People Travel? And let me tell you, it was a completely uh, fitting tribute to Elaine's performance. I mean, it was... Oh, uh, is that on YouTube? I don't know if it is. It should be. It was so divine. And he... um, he also told a really hilarious story of riding a limo with her, which I can't even remember, but it, we, we got to have him on the pod at some point. He's a screamingly funny person. Anyway. Okay, so like I said, each lady gets a really great monologue. This next scene is Annie's monologue when she's in the hotel room with Aaron and then Marsha Gay shows up. And just the build of this scene and uh, the final uh, climax Wait, explosion I of Diane. Shout out. This is so stupid, but I and I said I wouldn't do this, and we could just skip little things so we don't get bogged down. But I can't let us skip the fact that Eileen Heckert has the line, "You have no feeling for noodles." <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, that, to criticize. It's not that funny of a line, but she makes it like the funniest thing that ever happened. You're so true. I can't believe I forgot that. Yeah. I hate to criticize, but you have no feeling for noodles. But um, 12 times slower. 
Yeah, yeah. And then and then Diane just says, Thanks, mom. Yeah, so good. Okay, sorry, um, go on. Go to the hotel. Okay, so no, then she Diane has her big this would be her big number in the musical called I'm sorry. And this also makes me miss Pixie Aventura because famously she performs lip syncs this monologue mm. in her show. So great. But this is, you know, this moment happens and then whenever she yells, slams the hotel room door after a wonderful, wonderful reaction shot from Marsha Gay Harden, Mm. slams the door and walks out to the elevator. The music changes. And this is the but still moment of the show because the whole mood changes. It's you're suddenly like really, really heartbroken for Annie. Like the one lady who still had a romantic heart and was holding out for, for her future with her man. Mm -hmm. And now we know she's in the same boat as, as the other ladies. Um, By the way, Marsha Gay Harden, it must be said, part of what's so brilliant about her performance in this is that in addition to being like this, like, you know, bitch other woman who's like, and like, you know, in some ways, I mean, not in some ways, it's just unconscionable that, you know, she's in this situation with her her client. Although in that very Freudian way, she's like, you're my therapist. And she's like, I'm a woman. I'm a woman. But (laughs) also, there's very much the layer of her being proud of Annie's progress. Yeah, yeah. She's allowed to get angry. It is absolutely not bullshit. Like, she truly is like, I mean, in an egotistical, selfish, narcissistic way, but she truly is like very pleased with the work she's made with this client, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. And Marsha is so good. Okay, so then the next scene, you know, like I said, the mood changes. It's this really uh, kind of touching montage of all of them reading their letters from Cynthia that they just got in the mail. Yeah. This We also get a great Eileen line, on such pretty stationery. Yes, I mean, <laughs> that's actually like a running thread because then later she says you could, you could write them a nice note. Yeah, yeah, she's just so focused on the details. But it's just so real. I mean, that it's is surreal. that generation, you know? Yeah, 100%. Um, So then we go to, I couldn't figure out whose house this was, but then later I realized it was Annie's house, Annie's living room that they're sitting in, talking about, they're trying to one-up each other about who's had it the worst. Uh, And I have to say, the interior of Annie's house looks a little like an olive garden, which I don't mind. But this this scene, this bet gets into a little bit of what I think you're talking about. She gets a little cartoony with her little monologue about, I want him dumped, uh, the L'Oreal crotch jockey uh, in front of everyone in the Western Hemisphere. She does her eyes. It's it's very big and broad. Then uh, another great scene, we go to the gay bar where there is not just one, but two ladies, two ladies of the theater who Mm -hmm. get wonderful, wonderful moments in this scene. Mm -hmm. One, of course, is Leah Delaria. And the other one, I didn't even realize this until Same. I watched it recently. Same. I didn't realize who this was. It's Deborah Monk. Wonderful. At the bar with, with Brenda. And she, she sees a picture of Morty and says her wonderful line, she's butch. Hilarious. Um, I also have to say the thing I realized watching this last night that had never occurred to me in the past was that the reason Elise, Elise, the reason Elise... Goldie um, gets so into dancing with the lesbians is not just because she's a fun girl and she's a diva, she likes attention, but also because she has been made to feel bad about herself and feel unattractive. And the lesbians making her feel hot is so Mm -hmm. something she's, you know, 
thirsty for. She needs that validation. Yeah. Yeah. I never understood. That's just another way that the script just like, is just like so dramaturgically sound, you know? Well, and, and like you were saying with the treatment of the lesbian scene earlier, this scene really treats the gay bar and, and the idea of women hitting on Goldie. It treats it so wonderfully because Goldie's not like weirded out by it or she's not grossed out. She actually loves it. And is, you know, it cuts to her later, like dancing with them and having a great time. And I think as a kid seeing this scene, I mean, obviously I, I must have kind of used my context clues to figure out what was going on. I think that was good for me to see this representation of like, oh, this is just a fun club. And like, if, if Goldie is enjoying it, it must be okay. You know, I think this might've been the first time that I was aware of Leah Delaria. Uh, yeah, me too. Um, and then I became a big fan of hers because yeah, she did love. On the Town just like two years after this. Yeah, love her so much. Um, also, I, I, as much as I don't feel that Patty would be good as Brenda, um, Bet has a very Patty moment when they, yeah. when they have to, do you know what I'm going to say? <laughs> Come on, honey, my place. <laughs> she's, with, she, well, she, she's with me, babe. Um, yeah. She's like, with me, babe. It's so Patty. I loved it. And then she says she has Sicilian, a Sicilian uncle. Yeah. Oh, that's that's another thing I was thinking. Like Sicilian, it's that's so Patty, yeah. and the whole like mafia thing, which that whole storyline I cannot get behind. But yeah. um, anyway, so then we go after this scene, we go to Elise, like reclaiming the assets or whatever in Bill's office. This would again be another wonderful number in a musical. Yeah. She goes in and she starts saying, uh, "Take everything." The Ming vase, the porcelain, Fabergé eggs, Tiffany lamps. I mean, she's literally just like listing Barbara Streisand's favorite things. I mean, um, I, I, didn't, I didn't remember from being a kid that Elise was supposed to be so rich. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. I know she's supposed to be a movie star. Like, I didn't remember that she actually had an Oscar. Because I just remembered the line about, that is a golden globe. Um, yeah. So I, I, I forgot that she also has the Oscar. And, like, does she owns, like, the whole... Well, also, it's things have changed now. Like, in those days, I feel like when they said a building downtown, now downtown is, like, as expensive as uptown, you know? But maybe yeah, that was a yeah. little bit more, like, in the wrong part. But whatever. In 96, Soho was already, like, extremely upside yeah. down. But, like, anyway. Uh, but, it, but it's just funny going through all the belongings. Like, Elise is, like, loaded. She loaded and... Um, it's expensive shit. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, uh, the, 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 some of the interiors of this movie, especially like Bill's office and, and his apartment, there's so much just random crap everywhere. Yeah. It's all expensive decor. I mean, it, it feels like you're playing the Sims or something and totally. you're just, you just like purchased all this, all these random like vases and plates and shit. I would love to like go through it with the production designer and ask about like, like, are those real, uh, Goldie Hawn, Andy Warhols, or are they just things that were made for the movie? Yes. Like, well, I was wondering that as well, because I know some, like the, on her answering machine table, which I love that montage as well, because you get a little glimpse of each of the women. I in love their that lives. she has her own autographed photo. <laughs> yes. She has her own autographed photo. And then another black and white photo of her really young is literally just a, a still from foul play. Mm. It's like a shot from, yeah. from that movie. And I love when they do that in movies. Like they, they use actual like photos from the actor's uh, filmography. 
okay, well, I got lost. What next? What next? They go to the downtown building, which yeah. again, just like like a random detail. I uh, love that, by the way, that building is transformed into their beautiful office. Oh, yes, that was the part. I I that that was the part that made me just like roll my eyes so hard. And then that must have been, you know, in the original cut, they must have had like more of that. But the fact that she's like, okay, this is going to be perfect, and then like a split second later, it's suddenly magically transformed. I'm here and, for it. It's so, it's just so like, okay, got to get this done. Uh, and Goldie then, okay. so sexy in those blue workout clothes. Yes. The Stairmaster. I knew you would love that. I, I was like, Ben loves this blue outfit. <laughs> oh my God. I literally, as I was writing it, I was like, I bet Daniel's thinking that I love it too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and in this scene, Bet's getting cuter too. It's like her character is, is trimming down a bit. The weird like B plot about Bet going from fat to skinny is like a little yeah. bit crazy. And well, and again, that must have been that must they must have had more material on that in the longer cut yeah. because that is kind of a random detail that they don't really explore yeah. fully. But in this scene, she wears she's wearing a little shorter skirt, and like you can see her legs. And then okay, okay so after this, we get the. Full Sarah Jessica experience yes, with do. Maggie Smith. Uh, why don't you? Why don't you talk about this scene? There's so many great moments. Well, I just want to say I've been quoting this scene for years, and I always yes. do Maggie Smith doing a Maggie Smith impression that she does yeah. everywhere. But yeah. I forgot that she actually sort of does like a quote unquote like New York accent in this movie. Does she? Like, it's so hard to notice it because it's subtle and she <laughs> so sounds like Maggie Smith. But she definitely is, like, not giving it, like, the full, like, British mm. Maggie. She definitely is going for a little bit of, like, a New York society lady. And um, who's, in fact, married to a Jew, Ganilla Garson's Goldberg, you know? <laughs> yeah, Ganilla Goldberg. Um, but, you know, that's very Dolly Gallagher, Levi. Um, yeah. And uh, it's... I mean, I don't even know. The scene is just, like, such a perfect vehicle for Maggie. I mean, just, like... Just and, and just the the pairing of Maggie Smith with Sarah Jessica Parker, it's, it's, it's just so delicious because Maggie's, like, this really proper Upper East Side matron, and then Sarah Jessica's just this, like, trashy, like trying to make it work, using an, a guy for his money, trying mm-hmm. to become, you know, the next Jackie O or whatever, but just, like, does not know how to handle herself at lunch, let alone in society. My favorite part about this scene is that she says something that we say all the time, which is restaurant quality. Yes, she does. I usually bring my own dressing, you know, that fat-free ranch stuff, which, you know, I feel that. That's very my people. It's just also just, I mean, fat-free ranch is so the 90s and it's so disgusting. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm not, I'm, this is not me shitting on ranch dressing. Like, I think ranch dressing has its place in the world, although, like, I think you <laughs> people use it way too much. But You know I like it on pizza. But there's, you can, fat-free ranch is one of the dumbest inventions. It's like fat-free cream cheese. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's just that whole 90s craze of considering fat the enemy while we were all, like, just, like, guzzling carbs constantly. Guzzling you know? sugar, yeah. And it's, but, it, but it's also just, like, the idea of saying to, like, Maggie Smith, you know, mostly that fat-free ranch stuff, as if Ganilla Garson Goldberg is going to be, like, she like knows what that is. I I like snack wells. You know, like <laughs> she's so not on the same page, but she's yeah. just pretending to like you know because they're suckering her. Uh, it's just so perfect, and and Maggie just hits all the levels, but also just like like when Maggie like 
hustles her along to finish the first course. Yeah. And yeah, like the maid yeah. is coming to like take the plate and she's like, Are you done? <laughs> but like she's clearly not done. But Maggie's just like, just we, we gotta move this show along. She's like, Fork. Fork. Um Fork. So SJP is so good opposite Maggie and in the next uh, section, she's so wonderful with Morty, played by Dan Hedaya, I guess is how you say it. Famous actor. Um, Who also the dad in Clueless. Oh, really? I ne- you know, I've never seen that. Can you believe? That's insane. Oh, my God. I know. Um, although I did just recently watch this movie, uh, this old Coen Brothers movie called Blood Simple, and he plays the bad guy in that. Oh, yeah. Movie. He's, like, in everything. Yeah. Um but this scene with the penthouse and the three girls sneaking in with Duardo is so, again, just like physical comedy to the point where it's like a Lucy and Ethel moment yes. at the end with the with the window washing thing. But uh, again, this penthouse, so 90s, feels like The Sims, just like random shit everywhere, like a fountain, a Mona Lisa tissue box, uh, another fountain with a waterfall. I mean, if they're trashy. A lazy boy, so trashy. Things, you know. Yeah. That that horrible TV. I mean, that TV, TV made me want to not have a TV in my home. You know? Right. Upstairs in the office, there's literally a full-size coffee machine. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I also have to say, like, Bronson can show, like, I mean, I don't know. Yes. Do you have a life experience of him? No, I was actually going to ask you about him because... Uh, I know him just from this, but I know he has done many things outside of this. I mean, like, I believe what put him on the map was his featured role basically as this character in Beverly Hills Cop. Oh, okay. Um, with a much stronger and more impenetrable accent. <laughs> and this accent is so crazy. That performance was so fucking funny, and even in that movie opposite Eddie Murphy, Brunson Pinchot is still possibly the funniest thing. And um, it's a little bit, like, homophobic, even though Brunson Pinchot is gay, but it's, like, a little bit, like, 80s movie, like, not homophobic, but just kind of, like, the gay is a little bit the butt of the joke, you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, but he was freaking hilarious, and out of that, he got a long-running hit 80s sitcom called Perfect Strangers, Oh. Doing more accent work where Broadway actor, singer, dancer, Marklin Baker plays this American guy whose Russian cousin, cousin, or East European cousin, cousin Balki, comes to live with him in the in New York, played by Bronson Pinchot. And it's like a buddy comedy sitcom about him and his cousin Balky living together in the big city, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's such like an 80s, just, it's such the kind of like sitcom-y sitcom that sitcoms yeah. in a way that even a sitcom today would never sitcom, you know? Right, how much would, would it would chuck chuck? But it like, but it ran for years and it was, Bronson Pinchot was definitely just like a cultural like icon of the 80s, you know? Yeah. That's so interesting because I literally only know him from this. And then his career sort of died and he had a few other things. Like I've, I almost had forgotten he was in this because it's actually a hit movie, you know? So like, it, it seems like he didn't even have these kind of opportunities after this. The only real sort of notable thing he did after this was that he starred in the Broadway version of the Sondheim Review, putting it together with Carol Burnett. Oh yeah, sure. But, um... But I kind of feel like in this movie, he's one of the less successful performances. 
Yeah, and I, I think that as well. But it's I think he gives a he was, fine performance. He's fine. But the thing is, he's so well cast. He's because they chose him because they clearly wanted him to do what he did on Perfect Strangers and what he did in Beverly Hills Cop, which is to do a character with a comedically broad Eastern European accent. Yeah, yeah. And he chooses to do something more subtle, and that's not what the script wants. Right, right. And I don't know Although, if he was difficult about it or just nobody had the balls to be like, the accent needs to be bigger, buddy. You know? Yeah. But, like, he could have been funnier in this movie if they let him go OTT. Or, or also if he kind of willing to do it. Who knows, though? I mean, maybe it would have been too much because in, you know, these scenes with Sarah Jessica and all the girl, all the ladies, it's, I mean, there's so much happening already and there's so much personality. It would have been too much. It's so clearly, the fact that he has a subtle accent, like his character is like, I keep, I kept watching it last night being like, I know this broke the director's heart to watch this movie because Mm, like, mm. this is clearly not what they wanted. Well, and it almost, at some point, it almost starts to sound like a speech impediment where you're like, oh, wait, is he, does he have like a, some sort of, he can't pronounce his words or is it an accent? Um, yeah, it's not, they, but it would have been so funny if he did the thing or if somebody else had done that bit. Right, right. Um, okay, so another thing I love about this scene is, and it just gives me so much joy is seeing Diane Keaton at a computer, like hacking into the yes, mainframe, yes, 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 just yes, like yes. clicking on a keyboard in a way that no one actually does that. Like you use a fucking mouse, you know, <laughs> yeah. in movies, people are always doing these things on the keyboard and it's like, you know, she's like, no, no. And I don't know, just di- thinking of Diane as Annie, as like the tech savvy one of the group, yep. just like gives me my entire life. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, mayhem ensues, Ethel and Lucy hijinks with the window washer. Then as they're going down, they get stuck at that window with the couple making out in bed. And do you know who that lady is? Kate Burton. Yes. That's another one I didn't realize until just in the past few and, and viewings. And the man is Walter Bobby. Walter Bobby. That's I, I knew the man was probably someone, but I did not recognize him. But I was like, oh, my God, Kate Burton. Just another and it's just weird a cameo. delicious moment. Like, I want to live in the world where this moment is interrupted by them being fans of Elise. You look great. Yeah. Yeah. That is a Paul. If I had to choose one line in the whole movie written by Paul Rudnick, it would be that. And there's so much story being told in that one little glimpse uh, of them because there's like roses on the bedside table. There's some sort of like, it's clear that this is like, um, some sort of event like anniversary or it's some sort of thing that they're on a date with, or maybe they're sneaking away to a hotel or something. Interesting. But um, there's a lot of, of stuff happening. I will say this was the scene up in the penthouse, up in the apartment or whatever, where Bet was giving me the most Lorna left hamminess. However, <laughs> I do really love Bet. Like, like I could love no other when they get off the window washing. Yeah. Thingy, yes. Yes. And she's like, you want to go again? Yeah, she reminded me of my my dearly departed friend, the late great Poppy Kramer, a mm. fabulous comedian who was a fixture at the duplex for a million years, and that was exactly the joie de vivre that yeah. Poppy Kramer would have brought to that line. Yeah, so good. Want to go again? Uh, so then they're having their little picnic with candles, peanuts, marshmallows, and 
a platter of full-size Twix bars. God bless. Which I did not, I never noticed that until this one. And I think they're right by bed. I didn't, but you're making me hungry for candy. Yeah, same. Uh, Of course, the you don't know me moment. And then we have, which I love, this kind of device for advancing the plot. Like this montage of each of their answering machines. Mm. um, Which, you know, I paused on everyone and just took in everything on that table. Wait, one more, uh, one more Bette Midler shout out though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When they get in the fight and Bette shows and shows all the liquor bottles in in Goldie's trash can. Yes, and she's like, "I had company," and it's it's so bad, it's so over the top, but it's fabulous and it works. And she's like, "Who? Guns and Roses?" Yeah, I mean, a classic, wonderful, wonderful line. That's just um, so what, that, that like weird flip into head voice. So she's like, "Yeah, who? Like, Guns and Roses? Roses?" It's like. Yeah. It's I like mean, what, Gypsy when she's like, amigos. Yeah, yeah, her little yodel. Yes, that's right. Uh, but we'll, that's we'll get to that. I mean, that scene we have to talk about in detail. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I thought that's where you were. No, 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 no. I mean, not yet. We're almost there. But, um, oh, wait. Okay, then we have the auction. Mm. So this is uh, Maggie Smith, the gay decorator, and Sarah Jessica, a wonderful, wonderful trio. And then, of course, we have the classic plant in the audience mm-hmm. that trying to uh, raise the uh, bidding price in a wonderful, crazy blonde wig. Mm, yes, she do. Uh, then we have the scene with Bet and Jason. Bet's in her like good dress. And I'm pretty sure that armoire she has, I'm pretty sure we had that armoire as a kid. <laughs> um, okay, here we go. Then we get to the best scene. Elise is drunk. Bet and Diana are on the couch. Elise is emptied a bottle of vodka and goes to get another one. And they start talking, and that's when Elise really goes off. Mm-hmm. And and Bette starts emptying the, the bottles, and, and as you said, says her famous line, Guns and Roses? There it is. <laughs> There's nothing I love more than Bette getting on her high horse as a character. And it's like, voice. <laughs> yeah, in a head voice. Brilliant. Um, my other favorite bet moment in this scene is after she throws the golden globe yeah. and it shows Goldie rushing over to like rescue it. And then it cuts back to bet and bet does this crazy, like complete 180 turnaround. And then she kind of saucily kind of leans against the bar. And that movement is, I had to rewind it twice and rewatch it because that movement is so sassy and funny just bet's little like satisfaction with what she just did <laughs> and again this i wrote down they blend like the best neapolitan ice cream in this scene mm. like all of their neuroses so and high strungness and personality comes through uh and again uh, all of elise's uh the mise-en-scene of yes uh, although i do not like that oil painting at all yeah is that supposed to be like um like a john singer sergeant or something it's it looks like like somebody like really like just like banged it out real fast for the movie but maybe not maybe it's maybe it's a real thing and it's like I mean I think it's supposed uh like Madame X that famous painting I thought like maybe that was supposed to be oh oh, oh, I bet you're right and I just am an idiot and missed it yeah and then of course there's the Warhol I mean it's basically like Elise just I live for the Warhol uh, you know just painted into like the history of art Okay, so then this is another, like, but still moment. Uh, Billy Porter's song playing, and then we see each of them recovering from this big conflict. And I know, this is another moment I thought of you. I know you felt that whenever we see Bette shopping at the grocery store. Felt what? I know you you felt that scene because you love a grocery store. You love shopping. No, no, I hate, I hate a scene in a movie where 
they're derailed and we all fucking know it's going to be put back together. I fucking hate this moment of like the gospel Billy Porter song and the three of them. <laughs> and watching it last night, I was like, okay, calm down, Rimmelauer. This lasts for about like 18 seconds. Like it'll be it okay. Really, it's over so fast. But I'm just, I automatically get my defenses up because I'm just like, I know they get back together. Don't waste my time. <laughs> I just love seeing how each of them deal with it because Elise tries to clean up and she obviously can't work the vacuum. Bet goes to her happy place, which is shopping. And then Annie's just like fingering the pearls on the bed. What saves it is Eileen because. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she is so touched that, that Diane Keaton thought of her when she felt bad. <laughs> her satisfaction about that makes it all worth it. Just like making it about her. Yeah. You called me. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, it's so brilliant. And then of course her wonderful, wonderful line, uh, maybe send a hanging plant. <laughs> uh, okay. Then we see Elise show up at Brenda's and then Elise and Brenda come back to convince Annie. And this is a line I don't understand what they're saying. Uh, Annie says, Elise, what if you stop drink? What if you start drinking again? And Brenda, you start snaking away. Is that what she's saying? Or is she saying snacking away? Oh, I don't I, know. I, I've never understood that line. And then we see uh, Morty gets arrested. Okay, then they all take control and they're st- they start. Arresting Morty is future Academy Award winner, former Broadway musical comedy triple threat, J.K. Simmons. J.K. Simmons, yes. As, yeah, coming in the, the store to arrest Morty. That is so crazy. I'd never noticed that before last night. I I was a fan of his already because he was um, he and Walter Bobby were three of well Walter Bobby was nicely nicely Johnson and but the three they were the two of them plus somebody else were the trio in um, Guys and Dolls with Faith Prince and Nathan. Mm, mm. Uh, so then they each they each you know roll out their plans to get their husbands. Uh, so nineties. Then we go so nineties. Then we go global. This is another misheard lyric from this yeah. from this show. Uh, whenever Diane Keaton says, I bought them out, I never knew what she was saying as a kid. And I always thought she said, I bought the Mao. Like, I thought the Mao was like the name of the ad agency. Oh, funny. So, such a peak Diane Keaton of like, just so Diane and so perfect is when she's like, I, I did, I did. <laughs> I can and I did. I mean, it's also so baby boom, like her in a boardroom, yes. you know, like with ad executives. By the way, played by Greg Edelman and Mark Nelson. Mm. Former, I'm acting like I know who those are. Greg Edelman, Broadway star of City of Angels, former husband of Carolee Carmelo. Oh, okay. Now there's the credit I need. And Mark Nelson, uh, many Broadway credits, the original star of the Picasso, Steve Martin play, Picasso with Le Pan Agile, and um, uh, so many other things. Uh, so then, yeah, they each get their men and then they bring them in. And then of course, Chris says her famous line, daddy, I'm a lesbian, a big one. Hilarious. So when they're sitting the men down and they're talking to them, giving them their lecture, this is the bet moment that my sister and I would always laugh out loud at is whenever, um, Annie's doing her little speech and Bet's nodding. And then Morty says, what is this about? I'm getting sick of this or whatever. And Bet does this double take to him. That is so funny. And my sister and I would always laugh and rewind that moment. Aww. 
Then we have the building montage. They they start writing the checks for the ladies. We have this montage See, that, of them. That must be why they cut the other montage, because they were like, one montage is enough. One montage is enough, yes. Uh, sisters doing it are doing it for themselves, starts playing. They start building the Santa. Elise starts rehearsing the play, which is at the, quote, Plymouth Theater, which it's the one next to the booth. What is that actual theater called? The one next to the booth is the Schubert. No, on on. Oh the no, no, that was called the Plymouth. It just got renamed oh, to Schoenfeld or some bullshit. And the, the Schoenfeld, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck those fucking fucks. <laughs> yeah, fuck you. You. Fuck if you're gonna fuck. name a theater over, then if you're gonna change the name of the historic Plymouth Theater on Broadway, why don't you name it after Ethel Merman? Yeah, yeah why is totally. It some fucking fat cat real estate agent. Yes, I could not agree more. Fat agent, you know, real estate investor. The fucking Schoenfeld and what's the other one? The Jacobs. Ugh. Oh, all those. I mean, this is for another podcast, but there are so many people we need to honor. Ooh. We need a Jerry Herman theater. I'll beef patty against those guys. Yes, 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 yes. I'll beef patty. The Schoenfelds. Yeah. Uh, okay, so then we see Annie in a boardroom again. Then we go to the Kathy Lee Gifford of it all with her interview at the Cynthia Swan Griffin crisis center for women, which is a Barbara Streisand mouthful. If I've ever heard one in Soho. And you know, there's uh, a Barbara Streisand women's cancer research center. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the, the heart center for women or whatever. There it is, yeah. And then we see, okay. Then the final scene, uh, the opening of the center, another great Eileen line. Wonderful helping people through a buffet. I mean, there's so much to say about this scene, but uh, I know we're almost out of time. What do you? What are your thoughts? I mean, there's the Ivana Trump. There's Uncle Carmine and Ganilla getting together, about to fuck. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm. I'm the main thing I just want to talk about is the song. So you know, you. I don't... Oh, oh, but before that, sorry. One more thing that we always quote. Another great Eileen moment. Uh, Annie, you're not getting any younger or thinner. You know what I think you really need? Absolutely nothing. Lovely. Uh, Brenda and Morty may reconcile. And, oh, my God, that when they start dancing together and it cuts to Jason smiling, that just, like, warms my heart this so much. This is what much. I was trying to figure out. Who does he remind me of? Yeah, there is someone he reminds me of as well. He isn't somebody, but... There's a grown-up act that if that guy that that guy nowadays would be what like your age or a little older than you, younger than me, little older but probably, like, yeah. But there's a guy that's like in his fifties or sixties who looks like an older version of that kid, and I can't place it. Mm. Anyway, um, the song. Uh, then we get to the song. Yes, um, just there's. Okay, you, you, what do you say? Your well, I just want to say that just as in 1996, my takeaway is Goldie. Like, yeah. Because I feel like <laughs> Diane Keaton is like, you know, my moment of living for Diane Keaton as a singer is Annie Hall. Yeah. Like, yeah. Hearing Diane Keaton sing in that weird little, like, tiny, teeny, incy-weensy soprano, It Had to Be You or Seems Like Old Times... To yeah. me, that is glorious magic, and no crass cow like Patty or Bernadette could ever do something as exquisite and period mm. and perfect as that. Yeah, I'm talking to you, Bernadette. <laughs> and, you know, and Bette Midler, you know, my moment of Bette Midler singing is every other moment of my life when I'm not watching First Wives Club. And, like, mm-hmm. clearly Bette sings this song, like, I don't know, whatever key is good for these girls, you know? <laughs> like, 
Yeah, that's yeah. Just like that's like well, how are we doing this? When do I come in? Okay, like you know, yeah. Like she's yeah. just like not stressed out about this vocal performance, you know. But like this is like Goldie's like musical theater comeback. I feel you know, <laughs> and Goldie so right. like so Pat Benatar balls to the wall. Yeah, There's yeah, she like, really goes balls to the wall. B plot of like this movie. Maybe a B plot is too strong, but like there's a thread of Goldie as like a little more like hippie chick rock and roll cool than Diane yeah. or Bet. Yeah. Which makes sense because where the other two have been like moms, Goldie has been like, you know, doing blow and like going to the Oscars and like been yeah. like a celebrity all these years since they graduated college. You know, her character rather. And so, mm-hmm. you know, she uses the word man and like, she's just like, you know, Elise is just sort of like cooler and more rock and roll than the other two. And you right. hear it when she sings, you know, she's yeah. just like, you know, she comes from like a rock and roll, a rock and roll alto, chest voice, belter, balls to the wall. It doesn't have to sound pretty, <laughs> you know, not, not that better. It's almost Bonnie Tyler. You know, she's, yeah, she's like, like, what's her line that she sings? It's like, my favorite part is whenever she's like, they're like, I'm young. And then she's like, and I love to be young. Yeah, exactly. It's very like guttural. She's like, I love to be young. Yeah. And I mean, as, as wonderful as this number is, I will say the lip syncing girls sucks. I mean, the lip syncing is so bad. Mm. Um, I don't but, mind. But of course, I mean, also we're supposed to believe there's suddenly like all these backup singers and, and like a band behind them. I mean, it's a little, you have to suspend disbelief a little bit. I mean, I kind of wish that they did it at the event. Yeah, me too. But I think this was... Because why is... I never understood the line and maybe a little brave. Yeah, again, I think I think there was more that they cut like, that was leading up to that or something. Why is it so brave if they're just alone at the empty place? Yeah, and I don't know They've exactly... They've already sung it <laughs> earlier in the movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know exactly the order of events, but I know this... They didn't have an ending for the movie. They didn't know how they were going to end it. And so I guess they had this footage already for something. They had it. And so they're like, oh, maybe we should tack this on at the end. And this will be a good ending. I don't know. I I know they, this originally wasn't the ending and I don't know if they decided to film it for the ending or if it was already filmed and then they decided to tack it on. Well, I love it. Yeah. This was obviously the best, the best ending. And um, nothing makes me happier then there are three outfits that are so totes them and their character yeah. in yeah. the same color. The same color, but totally tailor-made for you them. You can always make me happy to see through, like, like I want the Simpsons to be in their normal clothes, but in black sequins, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I all, that is never old on me. Yeah. Um, we get at the end, whenever they exit the building, we get a little bit of Bet's signature Bet walk. Yes. And then very simple choreography, but down the streets. Pat Birch, choreographed Pat Birch. Um, and one more thing I'll say, which I must have known this, but I had forgotten it. They all turned 50 around the same time on the set of the First Wives Club. Mm. They, their, their birthdays kind of all fall within the same couple months. Yeah. And they all turned 50, which is just so... Um, just such a nice bit of trivia, but it's also so fitting in the 
point of this piece. You know, totally. the fact that these women are aging, the fact that they all turn fabulous 50 together, yeah. um, the lady age, if, you know, we're talking about Lady Watch. Yes, Ryan. Um, yeah, Jason. Shout out to Ryan and Jason. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I've seen this movie dozens and dozens of times, but watching it again, the older I get, I always pick up little things here and there that I didn't before, and I never get tired of it, you know? Yeah. I could watch it again tonight. Well, thank you for making me watch it, because I loved it. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to watch it, and... You know, listeners, if you have other suggestions or thoughts or whatever about our future corn streams, please let us know. Um, we have a lot of exciting things planned. And um, one of those things, of course, is our live streams on Tuesday and Thursday at 1030, which you can tune into on the Broadway World Facebook page, Broadway Podcast Network, YouTube. And uh, yeah, we have an exciting uh, future for that planned as well. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. Thanks for listening to Ben Rimmelauer's Broken Records on Broadway World. For more episodes, visit Broadway World, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts do be. (laughs) And be sure to check out our new twice-weekly live stream video chat, Tuesday, Thursday, April, August. This episode was edited by me, Daniel Nolan. Thanks to Emmy-winning composer and lyricist Lance Horn for the Broken Records theme song. Follow us both, Ben Rimmelauer and Daniel Nolan, on all y'all's socials. That's Ben Rimmelauer. B-E-N... R-I-M-A-L-O-W-E-R. And that's Nolan with an E, not Nolan with an A. Because Nolan with an A is an ass. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.